it's the Fourth of July, and uh, and uh, for at least three or four years now, there's been a kind of a little tradition that we have developed here on the Fourth. First of all, the Fourth is a kind of a great day to be on the air. Uh, for one reason, nobody's listening. And, uh, yeah, it really is true that uh, one of the great things about working on holidays when you're in radio and television is that's the day that the rats can play because the big rats are out sitting on a fan tail of their Chris Crafts out in the bay and then stuff like that, you know, and <laughs> they don't. So uh, uh, on this day for a long time now, we've, we've done something. It's been a good four years, and uh, I thought this year it, uh, that maybe I wouldn't do it. You know, it was very interesting. Uh, for at least the last two weeks, I thought that maybe I would not do what we have always done on the 4th, or at least for the last three or four years. No, I really did. I said, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something else. And then all of a sudden, without warning, I was deluged with a group of uh, letters from people from various parts of the country who asked me, would I please do it again? And no, I, I'm not. This is no setup, no gimmick. It's a fact. In fact, one of, I, one of the letters is in that stuff in there, Jerry. If you can look it up, you'll find it. It's a letter from a kid, and uh, he says that he's got his tape recorder all set up because he wants to record this little essay. Now, what we have done for some time uh, on the fourth is uh, read and reread a short story which I wrote uh, for Playboy magazine originally. Uh, back in uh, roughly 1967, uh, it was about then, and it was a short story. Well, actually, it wasn't a short story, to be perfectly honest and technical about it. It was part of a book that I was working on. It was printed in Playboy as a short story, but actually it was not really separate from the book at any point in my mind, and certainly in the mind of my editors at Doubleday. It was a chapter of a book entitled, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, which uh, I have great news, by the way, for you in connection with that. I've been getting letters from people asking where they could get copies of it. It's been out of print. It's a hard book, hardcover book now for a good uh, three or four years. But it's just been reissued. As a matter of fact, uh, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash has been reissued by Doubleday under their Dolphin uh, insignia. That's the Dolphin. Uh, they have a line of, of uh, what they call quality paperbacks, the Dolphin line, and they've just brought it out. It came out, in fact, it'll be out officially the 6th of July, but it's been on the stands for about 10 days, roughly. So if you're looking for a copy of In God We Trust, at long last, you'll be able to get one. Uh, it's Dolphin number C486 is the catalog number. So... If you have a bookstore who says it's not in print and I can't get it, you tell them it's Dolphin, C486. Now, the story that we're talking about is a a short story which uh, that year won the Playboy Humor Award for, uh, according to the editors of Playboy, the funniest piece of humor writing of that year. Now, uh, for on the air, though, I have to edit it very strongly, not because of of language or anything, but because it's too long to do in a show of this nature. It's quite a long short story. In fact, it, it approaches a, no, a novella, really. It's a good long short story. And the name of the short story is Ludlow Kissel and the Dago Bomb that Struck Back. Now, uh, I'm, I have to quickly assure you that the word Dago Bomb in this case is not used as a derogatory term regarding anybody. It's the name of a certain type of firework. And uh, this is this is what it's been called immemorially from time immemorial in the fireworks industry, 
and it's a it's a fantastic aerial bomb. It's a bomb that shoots a charge way up in the air. And it's been known just like the Roman candle, and one of those why they call it the Roman candle. It's it's no takeoff on Romans, uh, but the Dago bomb has always been known as that, and it does not refer at any point to anybody and any particular group of people. So I want you to know that right off the right off the bat, it's a name of a bomb, and it's not really a bomb. It's a piece of fireworks. So we're going to hear the story of Ludlow Kissel. So sit back. Turn on your tape recorders. I warn you, though, it's a much shorter version, and it's much edited, so don't write me a letter and say it was different in the book. It is different in the book, and for reasons of space and time. Herb, please. (laughs) And so it is the 4th of July. And the 4th of July has specific meanings to Americans both in legend and in fact and in myth. And the title of this short story is Ludlow Kissel and the Dago Bomb That Struck Back. It attempts to deal with all three facets of the 4th of July thing in America. Myth, fiction, and fact. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. Now, I will give you a brief uh, preface uh, the I in the book is not Gene Shepard. I'll warn you that right away. It is an I. His name is Ralph Parker. It's not Gene Shepard. A lot of you have written and asked me why I'm different in life than I am in the book, but it's not me. It's a, it's a fictional character, and he has he has he lives in Manhattan, and he has just gone into a bar. It's a hot day. He's gone into a bar to have a drink, and he's waiting to to visit a friend. Uh, friend's going to come in, they're going to have dinner together, and he's in this elegant east side bar. And on his way to the bar, uh, he, was, he was suddenly frightened. Uh, he, was, he was rocked back on his heels because he heard the sound of distant dynamite demolition going on where they were building a new subway. He says New York is always building a new subway or a new something. And he, he, he hears this thunder of dynamite somewhere off in the distance, and now he sits in the bar and he thinks about it. <laughs> and he's, he's, he's drinking a drink, and it's hot, and it's July. He says, let's admit it. There are few sounds more soul-satisfying, more frightening, more exciting than an explosion. Explosions of one kind or another have always been part of great folk celebrations, from weddings to wars. I sip my drink and I mused on the first time I had heard that primal roar of exploding black powder. Then it hit me. My God, tomorrow is the 4th of July. The 4th of July. It had crept up on tiny cat's feet on the scale of the calendar, unnoticed, unsung, unbombarded. It was then that I knew where those pleasant tinglings of mingled regret and exhilaration that we call nostalgia had come from. Yes, in just a few hours, it would be the glorious fourth. And here I was, without so much as a sparkler to my name. I ordered another drink, and I settled down comfortably into my soft, eider-down bed of remembrances of things past. There are times when you just have to let it go. As I idly mulled the twin olives in my classical Bloody Charlie, the northern Indiana landscape of the late Depression era began to take form, shadowy and persistent amid the green and gold bottles behind the mirror bar directly ahead of me. 
The blackened stumps, snaggletoothed and primal of the steel mills, and the oil refineries lay etched against the hazy gray-green horizon of the July skies of the Great Lakes. Somewhere off in the distance, the construction crew building the subway set off another dull, thumping blast that jiggled the silverware on my table, and it all began to come back. Dynamite, heat, and excitement were all intermingled in that Fourth of July ritual. What is there about a solid, molar-rattling explosion that sets the blood a-tingling and brings the roses to the cheeks? There are muddle-headed souls who will tell you over and over that man is basically a peaceful and quiet creature, destined ultimately to while away his golden days strumming lutes, penning odes, and watching birds. I have never yet witnessed a turtle preparing to ignite the portentous fuse of a cherry bomb. No, it remained for man to concoct black powder from the innocent elements of the earth and ultimately split the atom, all in pursuit of that healing bomb, the thundering report. And nowhere was this particular pleasure more honored and indulged than in the steel mill towns of northern Indiana. Even today, there are countless veterans of those fireworks barrages, hearing partly gone, a high, thin, singing sound in the cranium, <laughs> sporting stunted, stubbly eyebrows, vaguely jumpy from borderline shell shock, who search in vain for the fireworks stand to assuage their deep hunger for the celebrating concussion, the better to honor our glorious American past. Yes, the fireworks stand. Even setting the words down stark and simple on a page causes my hand to tremble and my brow to dampen in delicious heat and fear, the sort of fear that only a kid who has lit a five-incher under a carnation milk can and has hurled himself prone upon the earth awaiting the end can know. Even the look of classical fireworks are magnificent. The five-incher, hard, cool, rock-like cylinder of sinister green jade, its vicious red fuse, aggressive, and yet quiet, cradled in the palm of the hand, is an experience once known, never forgotten. The cherry bomb. Yes, the cherry bomb. Ah, what pristine geometric tensile beauty. A perfect orb. Brilliant carmine red, packed chock-a-block with latent terror and destruction. The torpedo, an instrument malevolent and yet subtly complex, designed for hand-to-hand -hand celebration. Many a grown man today carries in his shins a peppering of tiny round pebbles buried deep in the flesh from too close familiarity with the roaring torpedo, a shrapnel victim of the glorious fourth. For the uninitiated, I, I at this point must explain that the torpedo was perhaps an inch high, a half inch in circumference, symbolically striped in the colors of our country, made to be hurled against a brick wall or a passing hupmobile, a contact weapon of singular violence that sent its igniters, tiny rock fragments, showering over an area of 50 yards or more. The pinwheel. Hmm. An expensive device largely used for flamboyant show and yet responsible for some of the major conflagrations of the past. Whole blocks, and indeed some cases entire towns, disappeared under the roaring flames to the applause of the multitude. I speak with more than average authority on these matters since my father, a genuinely dedicated fireworks maniac, owned and operated a fireworks stand every year during my larval stage. Yes, the Depression lay like... Uh, over the land like a great numbing blanket of restlessness and frustration. But on the 4th, the sky would be filled with skyrockets, booming aerial bombs, and hand grenades because nobody had anything else to do in those days. They'd just sit around and scratch, and make beer, and wait for the 4th. I remember sitting on the porch watching them. Says, you know, the more celebrated 
celebrants on relief, most of them, uh, shot their relief check in one orgy of fireworks buying. Fireworks came in a, in a number of exotically lethal varieties. This is WOR New York, speaking of lethal varieties. Among them was the classical Dago bomb. Now, this was never construed as an anti-Italian name, being actually more pro than anything else. It was the knee plus the nay plus ultra of the fireworks world. If you've ever seen one, you'd know it. A true thing of beauty and symmetry. It came in several sizes, four to be exact. The five inch, the eight inch, the ten inch, and the sure death. In more effete circles, it was known as an aerial bomb, but among real fireworks fans, it was known as the Dago Heister. It actually looked like those giant, non-existent firecrackers that occasionally show up in cartoons. A red, white, and blue tube with a wooden base stained dark green, a long red fuse, and the instructions printed on the bottom, quote, place upright in a clear, unobstructed area. After igniting, stand well back. Not recommended for children. The manufacturer assumes absolutely no responsibility for this device. Now, theoretically, this infernal machine was to be lit by an expert hand, it would then explode with the first or minor explosion, which propelled an aerial charge of pure white TNT into the ambient air, theoretically vertical, for several hundred feet, and then, pow, devastation. Not once, but several times, depending on the size of the Dago bomb in question. It was not cheap, the smallest going for 50 cents and the largest for around $5, which was a lot of money even then. The legends surrounding this mysterious weapon are countless. The mere sight of one of the larger specimens on the shelves of a fireworks stand sends waves of fear and nervous excitement among the sparkler buyers. It was truly the big time. <laughs> it was a Dago bomb that played a key role in the legend that was Ludlow Kissel. Mr. Kissel had found his true medium in the Depression itself. Kissel worked in idleness the way other artists worked in clay or marble. God only knows what would have happened to him if it were not for the Depression. He was a true child of his time. He was also a magnificent souse. The word alcoholic had not yet come into common usage, at least in the steel towns of Indiana. He just called it drunk. Nor were there any lurking Freudian fears or explanations for the classical appetite for potage that Kistel displayed and nourished. He was a drunk. He knew it. He just liked the stuff. He glommed onto it whenever the occasion demanded and if the store-bought variety of lightning was not available, he concocted his own, using raisins, apricots, Fleischmann's yeast, molasses, and dead flies. Nominally, Kissel worked in the roundhouse, and for over 30 years had been on what they call the extra board, being called only in extreme emergencies, which occurred roughly every, every second month or so. He invariably celebrated a day of work by holing up in the bluebird for perhaps a week, and then would return home propelling himself painfully forward on one foot and one knee. He was compensating for a badly tilted horizon. The sound of Kissel crawling up the gravel driveway next to his house was a familiar one in our neighborhood, and it took him sometimes upwards of three hours to make it from the street to the back porch. At 3 a.m., lying in my dark bedroom, it was kind of comforting to hear Mr. Kissel struggling up the steps of his back porch, inching painfully, step by step, thump, one step. Long pause. Thump. Two. Longer pause. Thump. He's made it three in a row. Split second pause. Thump, 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 thump. He's back at the bottom. 
Many's the time I've slipped off to sleep with this familiar sound of human endeavor battling over overwhelming odds, Kissel trying to make the kitchen door. And then the voice of Mrs. Kissel, a large flower-print apron lady who read true romances voraciously, would call out, Watch the steps, Lud. They're tricky. She loved him. Kissel, one fourth of July, played a leading role in a patriotic tableau which is even today spoken of in hushed, reverential tones in the area. It was a particularly steamy, yeasty, hellish July. The houseflies clung to the screen doors, and the mosquitoes hummed in great, whirling clouds in the poplar trees. It was in such weather that Mr. Kissel reached his absolute apogee. He was not a winter souse. There was something about the birds and the bees and the hot sun that set off a spark in Mr. Kissel's blood and stoked an insatiable thirst for the healing grape. His stock, stocky, overall figure reading through the twilight, leaving a wake of flickering fireflies, which is much a, was as much a part of the summer landscape as the full golden moon. Parishioners sprinkling their lawns and snowball bushes would nod familiarly to him as he wove through the fine spray of their brass nozzles. The fourth in question dawned hot and jungle-like with an overhang of black, lacy storm clouds. In fact, a few warm, immense drops sprinkled down through the dawn haze. I know, because I was up and ready for action. Few kids slept late on the 4th. Even as the stars were disappearing and the sun was edging over the lake, the first cherry bombs cracked the stillness, and the first old ladies dialed the police. Carbide cannons, which had gathered dust in basements for a year, roared out, greeting the dawn. And by 7 a.m., the first dozen pairs of eyebrows were blackened and singed, and already the wounded were being buttered with unguentine and sent back into the fray. Long lines of overheated Buicks, Willies, Essexes, and Pierce arrows inched toward the beaches. Babies cried. Mothers wept. Husbands swore. Parades fitfully broke out, and the White Sox prepared to battle it out with the big Fourth of July doubleheader with the St. Louis Browns. Futility meeting hopelessness head-on. The sun rose higher and higher, and at the zenith blazed down with an intensity of purpose and effectiveness equal to its best work in equatorial Africa. The asphalt simmered quietly and stuck to the tires and the tennis shoes of the passing parade. Lilac bushes drooped fragrantly, and the cicadas screamed from the cottonwoods. Through it all, the steady rolling barrage of exploding black powder in one form or another paid homage to our long-forgotten War of Independence. As the day wore on, this barrage grew in intensity because all true firework nuts learned from infanthood the art of rationing and husbanding the ammunition for the crucial moment which always came just after dark. Kissel had not made his appearance throughout the long morning and early afternoon. He was undoubtedly stoking his private furnace in preparation for his gala, which, when it came, was worth waiting for. Shortly after noon... A few drops of rain sprinkled down, just enough to dampen the shirt and the rose bushes, but not the spirits. Little did we realize that we were shortly to be the observers of a scene that would be discussed and recounted during the long winter months of years to come. The event became known simply as Kissel's Dagobah. The White Sox and the Brownies had painfully worked their way into the top of the third of the first game, a scoreless tie. When Kissel appeared on the shimmering horizon, weaving spectacularly 
and carrying a large paper bag as carefully as a totally committed drunk can. Kissel was about to celebrate the founding of our nation, the nation which had provided such a bounteous life for him and his. At first, no one paid much attention to the struggling figure as it inched its way from lamppost to lamppost and fire plug to fire plug. Little girls burned sparklers on porches, and I was carefully depleting a string of Chinese lady fingers. These are tiny firecrackers with plated fuses, all woven together and designed for the rich and profligate to fire off simultaneously by simply lighting the main fuse. No kid in his right mind ever did that. But instead, we carefully disengaged, fuse by fuse, the lady fingers. My mother, at regular intervals, called from the kitchen window the 4th of July watch cry of all mothers. Quote, be careful. You're going to lose an eye if you're not careful. Be careful. This was, of course, purely ritualistic. It was only a minor annoyance. Flick had already suffered a flesh wound of a routine nature. His right hand was swathed now in grease-soaked gauze, the result of demonstrating that he could hold a three-incher in his hand when it went off and still survive. He was now back on the scene working as a lefty. In short, it was a fourth like all other fourths. Up to the moment that Kissel took his stance. He had disappeared into his house to prepare for his massive statement of patriotism. Shortly afterwards, he reappeared on the front porch, stumbled down the steps, carrying in his right hand the largest Dago bomb that had ever been seen in the neighborhood. It was a Dago heister of truly awesome stature, being fully a foot and a half high and a good three inches in diameter. It was the first all-black Dago bomb anyone had ever seen. Now, this point has been argued over many a cold, wintry afternoon. Some reports have it that Kissel's Dago bomb was not a Dago bomb at all, but some sort of an obscure mortar shell. Others maintain it was indeed a Dago bomb, but of a foreign make, possibly Chinese, as the somber, menacing color was highly unorthodox. Suffice it to say that no one had ever really determined just where Kissel obtained the weapon or its true nature as Kissel himself was hazy on most details of his life, and this was no exception. His only comment later, which was never disputed, was, I sure got one. Well, when Kissel emerged from his front door and came down the steps carrying his work of the devil, the neighborhood almost magically knew that something big was about to happen. Sparklers flickered out. Kids ran through vacant lots and over driveways. Heads appeared at windows. The crowd gathered. Kissel, with that peculiar deliberateness of the perpetually fog-bound, laboriously prepared to detonate the black beauty. He placed it dead in the center of the concrete roadway and stood back to survey the scene, weaving slightly as he worked. The crowd drew back and watched, silently, excitement hanging over the multitude in a thin blue haze. Fireworks of that magnitude rarely were seen and commanded instant respect. The ebony monster stood, bolt upright, silent, with a cool quality of the truly lethal, understated, but potent. Shimmering waves of heat caused the scene to take on a strange, unreal, flickering quality. The neighborhood fell silent, and only the dull mutterings of distant fire barrages broke the stillness. A few errant drops of tepid rain sprinkled the concrete as we waited. The skies overhead were gray and threatening with ragged edges of black cloud shimmering in the July heat. Kissel, at center stage, struggled to find a match, the way drunks invariably do, going through pocket after pocket after pocket, 
fumblingly, maddeningly, and finding only pencil stubs and brass keys. It seemed to go on forever until finally someone, the point later was in dispute, no one quite knew who actually handed him the book of matches, solved the problem. Kissel took the matches in hand, paused for a moment, and belched. A deep, round, satisfying, shuddering burp of the sort that can only come from a vast internal lake of green beer. The crowd applauded and shifted impatiently, all eyes riveted on the dull black menace that stood with such dignity in the center of the concrete roadway. Finally, Kissel struck a match, which instantly went out. He struck another. It flickered and died. Another. Another. There was, I might add, a slight breeze which puffed fitfully in from the northwest. The audience grew restive, but no one dared leave. In fact, more viewers of the historic event were arriving by the minute. Kissel, as is so often the case with the massive drunk, seemed totally unaware of the drama he was creating, and with maniacal intensity struggled with his matchbook, lighting match after match. Suddenly, out of the crowd, a kid darted, an experienced detonator of high explosives of all sorts, who shoved into Kissel's palsied hand a stick of briskly smoldering punk. The kid, according to witnesses who testified later, uttered one word, Here! then turned and scurried back into the throng and into the pages of local folk history forever. Kissel, thinking at first he'd been given a cigar, gazed at it numbly for a moment or two and then dimly perceived that here was the means of lighting the fuse of the colossal black dago bomb. Now, the fuse on this type of insanity is of the coated variety and in the case was about three inches long, a black, stiff, powder-impregnated length of powder or fiber. That was the fuse. It didn't take much to light it then. And once lit, the die is cast. Kissel shuffled forward, punk in hand, and made several futile passes at the fuse, the magnificent bomb remaining aloof and cool throughout. With each pass, the crowd retreated. And then, with the inevitability of Greek drama, in the muttering silence, the telltale hiss sounded forth clear and unmistakable. The fuse was lit. Immediately the assemblage fell back in a mighty wave, turned and waited, while Kissel continued to attempt to light the fuse, totally unaware that time was growing short. It was already lit. Somebody called out, Kissel! Hey, Kissel, for God's sake, it's lit! Kissel raised his head questioningly and said, well, What's lit? The ominous hiss continued, and then suddenly, without warning, stopped. Now, occasionally these fuses are tricky and extremely dangerous. They have been known to lie dormant like this for hours, seemingly extinguished for no good cause. Now, obviously, this black menace was one of the treacherous fuses. Kissel returned to his fight, again touching punk to fuse. And this time, the fuse, in its unpredictable way, hissed frantically. Kissel, at last seeing that his monster was lit, attempted to get away. He reeled in a half circle, befuddled, trailing punk smoke behind him, and then, staggering forward knocked the black monster over on its side, hissing fiercely with only seconds remaining. Great Scott! The crowd, seeing this catastrophe unreading before its eyes, to a man hit the dirt. Those on the fringes dove into snowball bushes. Others simply moaned piteously and dug in. It was good training, as events turned out for later years for many of them. The Dago bomb lay on its side, its ugly snout pointing toward the houses which lay across the lawns 200 feet or so away. Cooler members of the mob shouted to those in the houses, 
Look out! It's coming! Close your windows! The fuse sputtered on. Kissel, himself, now aware of the nature of the rapidly approaching catastrophe, made a futile but certainly courageous attempt to right the bomb. He grabbed a hold of it and tried to set it upright. Somebody yelled, Get down, Kissel! You're going to get killed! Kissel fell over backward and lay flattened out on the concrete, waiting for the call of his maker. Then it happened. There are events which lend themselves readily to the descriptive phrase, the words of pen or tongue. Then there are things which happen that cannot be adequately communicated. The incident of Kissel's Dago bomb must be classified as one of the truly indescribable. Suffice it to say that the bomb was well made, and of an order of efficiency that firework manufacturers rarely achieve. With a definite, clipped, stinging report, the aerial bomb lying horizontally on its side, on its side, I repeat, propelled its deadly cartridge of dynamite out along the earth with a snapping, cracking report. Pow, 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 pow. Skipping, humming, singing in an instantaneous trajectory. It's struck terror into the very marrow of the bones of those fortunate enough to be on the scene. This Dago bomb was obviously designed to send its aerial charge at least 500 feet into the air. Now it was humming over the ground. For an instant or so, we were not aware of what sort of aerial charge it was prepared to deliver. We soon found out. The cartridge, which seemed abnormally large as it emerged from the black maw of Kissel's folly, skimmed over the sidewalk, parting the spectators like the Red Sea, over the lawn, over the driveway, with a sharp, audible click and whistling sizzle, it whipped under Kissel's front porch. And for a long, pendulous moment, the universe stood still. Fingernails clawed the earth. Heads burrowed into hedges. explosion rocked the neighborhood. The slats of Kissel's porch bellowed outward. The floor tilted instantly downward. A great yellow swirling cloud of dust rose over the lilac bushes. A second or two passed as an eternity, and then another and louder detonation thundered over the landscape. This time, it caved in the rose trellis of the house next door to Kissel's. The crowd heaved and dug deeper as two more giant explosions. Kaboom! Kaboom! They sounded almost as one, these last two under Mr. Strickland's Pontiac. A heavy cloud of dust swirled for a moment, and all was still except for the pattering of the quiet raindrops. Kissel slowly pulled himself to his knees and made his statement, which is even today part of the great Kissel legend. My God, what a doozy. Kissel had said it for all of us as the crowd slowly got to its feet amid the quiet tinkling of glass the heavy, sensual smell of oxidized dynamite, they were aware that they had been witness to history.
that's uh, that's the the uh, one small part really of the whole story of uh, Kissel's fantastic bomb, and uh, that was uh, that was the Kissel part. There's another part to the story which involves Roman candles, and uh, is based on an on an incident that uh, actually happened. <laughs> and in fact, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a funny thing. Uh, that story, which uh, for those of you who have it in book form, probably realize that it's been drastically uh, I drastically edited for air use because uh, to read it uh, as it is, it would take maybe an hour and a half, and is much richer really in uh, in written form. But uh, that story, for those of you who are are curious, what it was from is from uh, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. And for the last five or six years, we've read this story uh, on the 4th because a lot of kids have requested it and uh, wanted to hear more about it. It's now available again, as I said earlier. It's uh, The book has just been republished, and actually it'll be out July the 6th, or the 8th, 8th, I believe, is the actual publication date. And it's uh, been republished by uh, Doubleday in their paper book division, Dolphin. So if you're uh, going around your bookstore and you want to know where you can get a copy of it. Tell them it's a Dolphin edition, Dolphin, and the, the uh, serial number on it is, or the order number is Dolphin C486, and the title is In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. You know, it's, uh, before we go any further, how about, how about a little ding-dong here? The 4th of July, but the wheels still grind on. <laughs> All right, let's see. Now, we still have this uh, story about the youth fair to Portugal. And uh, briefly, I'd like to tell you what it's about. If you've never been to Portugal, it's uh, for years I've been raving about this country as a place just to visit and to walk around and see it and feel it and smell it. It's a really exciting country. And uh, if you're under 26 and over 12, uh, you really should take advantage of this fantastic youth fair deal they've got. TAP, which is the Intercontinental Airline of Portugal, has a youth fair for only $210. That's hard to believe, really because it costs that much to go to places like Florida, really. For only $210, round-trip economy airfare to Portugal. That's round-trip. The ticket is good for a year. And uh, that is if you're under 26 and over 12. The food is fantastic. I love Portuguese food if you've never had it. Uh, the people move real good. It's a nice place to visit. And what fantastic beaches. Believe me, they have some of the greatest beaches in the world in Portugal along the Costa del Sol. So call your travel agent or call TAP at 421, the number is 421-8500, for complete information about TAP's $210 youth fare to Portugal. Go where the European kids go this year, man. Portugal. Great country. Really. <laughs> yeah, man, that's a Portuguese uh, guitar there, in case you've never heard it. You know, uh, uh, that. Uh, now that we're talking about the fourth, uh, the curious thing. Uh, I, I actually, I'm one of the rare people. You know, I, I, people in New York amaze me a lot. In some, one, of, one of the most important ways they, they, they surprise me is how little they know about the rest of the country, even though they travel a great deal. Of course, most of them take planes and they, they just sail over most of the country. They never really see it. And, and whenever you mention fireworks, they tend to think that's out of the past. New Yorkers, they, they don't believe there's such a thing. You know that, that just... A few months back, I was driving in Wyoming. Now, this was not the 4th of July. This was just an ordinary month in Wyoming. It was like, you know, something like uh, 
December or November. So it was actually it was October in, uh, when I was in uh, Wyoming, and I was driving along, and I stopped at a at a gas station uh, way out in the, the the absolute flat prairies of Wyoming, and right next to the gas station was a fireworks supermarket. I mean, they were selling fireworks there. Uh, <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. Now this uh, this is just you know ordinarily uh, sold, uh, and and New Yorkers tend to believe that fireworks are out of the past. They also tend to believe that this story is out of the past. It is not. Both fireworks and drunks still exist. And more than that, they are often found together. Now, uh, <laughs> and the disasters that result, man, are just uh, unparalleled. Uh, and and as, to, to give you uh, an insight into how a short story, the genesis of a short story, uh, do you know how that story actually started, where I got the idea from it? Well... When I was a, was a teenager, I was uh, a very early teenager. I was about 12 or 13, just beginning my teens. Uh, my father, in, uh, in partnership with another guy, uh, opened up a fireworks stand. And they, they, it was a, you know an after-work thing. He had another job and all, but they just opened this fireworks stand up. And I had to work in it. And it was hot. I mean, it was just a little stand, you know, made out of wood, and it had a little counter, and it had bunting out in the front. You've seen these fireworks stands. Now, I'm one of the rare guys in the world who could say he actually worked in a fireworks stand. Temperature was always like 190 degrees, and we were out on this main highway. And you'd be amazed at, at the number of drunks. The affinity between drunks and fireworks is fantastic. That practically every third car that would come in to buy fireworks was driven by a guy who was, you know, two-thirds into the wind, and uh, he'd come, hey, hey, baby, what kind of cut? Hey, look, oh, look at him. Give me some big round ones. Of course, these drunks would invariably want the biggest and the toughest stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and there I was. I was, uh, as a kid, you know, and I'm selling the fireworks. Well, one day, uh, this drunk came up, and they're always showing off. Fireworks invariably, I shouldn't say invariably, but a large number of the times that fireworks are bought, involved some guy showing off for a check. I don't know why this is, the connection between fireworks and, and showing off. So this drunk drove up, and he, he was driving this great big car, and he was a real, you know, a real drunk type, and he was a, a big-time spender type. See? So he comes out of the car, and he's got this blonde with him, saying, he waters over, he says, hey, uh, hey kid, uh, I want some of the really big stuff. <laughs> and I could smell, the, you know, I could smell the gin, and he's uh, curling my hair. And he points to the stuff that was up in the back on the top shelf, which is the biggest stuff you can buy. See, like $4 a shot. It's the kind of stuff that, uh, you know, that local cities would buy for us to use for their 4th of July celebration, you know, at the park. He's pointing to the big ones, you know, boom, the kind of, that take iron racks to shoot off. See, so, well, you sure you want that? Yeah, yeah, how about that red, white, and blue one over there? Well, he picks the biggest thing that we had in the house, and he lays down the dough. Well, you know, I'm, who am I? I'm a kid. I'm selling the stuff. So I sell it to him. So he gets back in the car with a big bag, you know, a tremendous bag of, of, of fireworks. Well, they drive about maybe uh, 200 yards down the road. The car stops, and the guy staggers out of the car, and the chick is sitting in the car watching. See, obviously, he's, I'm going to fire one of these things. Oh, it's this, baby. He climbs out into, this, into the weeds there. It's a vacant lot, and he sets this thing up. Well, of course, within 30 seconds, everybody around realized what's going on, but they were too late to do anything about it. The guy lights the thing with his cigar, and he's standing right by it, you know, and people start hollering, look out, look out, and it went off, I want to tell you, well, it knocked the guy over backwards. 
And it, it, it <laughs> many explosions can do strange things. Uh, explosion is like lightning. It's unpredictable. Well, it blew the body of this guy's shirt right off. His The body of his shirt was gone, but the arms still stayed on. He had... <laughs> he had no shirt, but he had the arms of the shirt on, see? Well, you know, his, his hair was parted five different ways by this bomb. He goes staggering back into the car. <laughs> and he drove out down the street. You could see this great big haze of blue smoke hanging over the, over the, over the territory and bits of his shirt. He was wearing a light blue shirt. Bits of his shirt were scattered over about 200 feet. But I remember the guy getting back in the car. He's going, I don't like that, baby. <laughs> and his shirt is gone. Just blew it right off. But he still got the sleeves on, which, which I thought was a fantastic sight. He gets in the car and drives away. No eyebrows, you know, and his hair smoldering. And uh, he said, this, this sight never left me. And uh, that's the genesis of the short story, Ludlow Kissel and the Dago Bomb that Struck Back. And uh, if you're if you're curious, as I said before, the the rest <laughs> the rest of the story, of course, is in much larger, much more rotund form. And uh, have a good fourth. Watch out, though. And if you believe that fireworks have disappeared from the face of the globe, friend, you're a very innocent person. If you also believe that drunks have disappeared, you're even more of an innocent. Either that, or you're a drunk and don't know it. Uh, <laughs> you just like to drink a little bit. Oh, it's all. Seven or eight martinis before dinner. After all, what the hell? I've never heard a guy before, did it? Of course not. Boom! Right through a brick wall with your new Buick. Well, uh, stand up and be counted. Think clean thoughts. And I might say, uh, watch out for the ones with the short red fuses. Those are the mean ones. And uh, even though Flick did prove that you could hold a five-incher in your hand after it's been lit and survive... Uh, that was uh, one of those rare things. Of course, he's never had an elbow since. But uh, stand up. It'll work out. And happy fourth to you. <laughs> this is WOR New York. You stay tuned for Lester Smith and the News. 